we haven't been back that long. And already the Lord has made his intent known and we are already uh, quite in a, I don't want to call it intense, but in a very intentional process. And this is only our third Sunday of the year. So for me, I find that very encouraging that we've come back and the Lord is ready to to move ahead, move along. And uh, so... Yet again, we have gone through seasons of looking at the instructions by the Apostle Peter. And yet again, we find ourselves back in the first chapter of Second Peter. And this is no surprise, since the process that he does lay out for us is so defining um, in our maturing process. So I'm, I'm expecting that the Lord will bring us back to this during our discipleship walk continuously. Um, But just so everyone has a bit of an idea where we are and what we've done, uh, we started out the year looking at or reiterating the fact that we understand that um, as as a fellowship and corporately, the Lord has helped us to understand that we have gone through this process. If we look at 2 Peter, the first chapter from verse 5 to verse 7, specifically that process, the Lord has helped us to understand that we've gone, or we were supposed to, according to his curriculum, we've moved through faith, through virtue, through knowledge, self-control, and now this is the year of perseverance. And so we spent a bit of time talking about perseverance, what we understand as perseverance, why do we persevere, why can we persevere? And then we said, well, it's all because of vision what we see, what we know, what we behold, what we know to be true. And um, so he said, this is a year of perseverance, but it is perseverance by vision, because without vision, there's nothing to persevere towards. And then last week, what was it, end of 2018, 2020, end of 2018, we did also quite an intensive study of, of this very same piece of scripture, and we looked at it as, a, as an equation where we said to add to your faith plus virtue plus knowledge plus. And we did a whole series on that. But then last week, the Lord gave us a new perspective. And since it is the year of vision, he, the perspective that he gave us was centered around vision. And so he said the scripture starts with saying... Uh, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Yahushua our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust and then we looked at the rest of the process and the rest of the scriptures as well and then we understood that one way to look at this piece of scripture this truth here is to to break it up as a machine if you will so it says he gave, gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we said, so if we put faith, virtue, and knowledge on this side, we know even though it says add to your faith, virtue, add to your virtue, knowledge, this 
all depends on a substance that he gives us initially. So I can't know anything that he doesn't reveal to me because this is centered around the knowledge of God and not just my own knowledge. So I can't know anything that he doesn't reveal. We're going to look more at this today. Then we said he also gives us all things that pertain to godliness. And then it also continues to say, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. And we have done studies uh, pertaining to godliness, brotherly kindness and love. So I'm not going to explain that now. But we said this pertains to godliness. So these are essentially the promises that he promises us. This is the entering in. This is the, the godliness aspect of our walk. And so he said this obviously he gives us. Because we need an input from God. We need something to start the process with. So that's those three. He also gives us all things that pertain to godliness, but this is an outcome. So this is also put in place by God. So I can't just attain to godliness. This is something that he had to have put in place for me to access, to walk into. And then in between the knowledge of God and godliness, we have self-control and perseverance. And this is the place where we said this, this is our response. This isn't something that the Lord just gives from his side. It says self-control, not godly self-control or God will control yourself for you. So this is the part of our response. So God gives us all of these. He makes available to us all of these. And then he expects from us a response. So not just the adding every element to every other element, but also actively walking out self-control and perseverance. And this can only be done in a godly way if it is focused in the right place. And the right place is only the faith that he gave us initially, which is his glory, Messiah, his body, and us in perfection. So that's, yes. explain something, Lord, and he asked me after last Sunday about the grace and the peace. Do you only get it when you're there? So, okay, can I do a quick... Grace and peace, no. You don't only get it when you're here. You see, okay, so to try and understand how it fits into the process is to... I'm going to do a quick synopsis of what grace is and what peace is. So, obviously, we have our our own understandings and knowledge of grace and peace. But grace and peace we've come to know through our walk of discipleship is much greater. The truth of it is much greater than a definition. In actual fact, as we go through most of our faith walk, we realize that most of the Bible, even though it looks like words, there's great truth behind every single word. And so we don't want to define it as just an idea or a concept. In essence, grace refers to the ring wall that protects the seed of God. So it protects that which is on the inside. So it's a protecting power, keeping us in the will of God on the straight road. It doesn't force us there. It doesn't demand us to be there. But if we move within grace, it will keep us safe. It will supply to us everything we need from the kingdom so that we can walk out as well. Does that make sense? Peace is always, always without exception, reference to the covenant of peace or the covenant of of shalom. So it's not just referring to peace in the sense of no chaos or uh, hardship going on around us. It is the sense of restfulness, contentment, uh, um, 
protection, security, all of that. So both of these, if we really look at it in its, in its picture form, if we behold the truth behind it, both of this refers to something that's, if you want to, something that's around me and protecting me while I walk out the will of God, enabling me to walk out the will of God, protecting me, keeping me within his will so that I can do the things that I've been called to do. So why we, say the re- why we put it here is because the scripture tells us Uh, Verse 2 starts with saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. So, that doesn't mean that grace and peace isn't available here within our process. But once we start growing in the knowledge of God, now grace and peace gets multiplied. Because it says multiplied. So it doesn't say you only get it once you get there. It says it's multiplied in the knowledge. And we're going to look at this process some more today. Um... But what we're looking at is once we go through this process and we get to the place where we need to respond, we're going to need his protecting power, his grace, the ring wall that protects the seed on the inside. And we're going to need the strength of his covenant, the fact that he finished his work and uh, that all things are finished in him. We're going to need all of that from his side to enable us to respond in the way we need to. So it's still our response, but we, we all are aware of the fact that we're going to need all the help from his side that we can get. Can we quickly pause? What was the question again? Does he, does, do, you only, do you only get Christ's peace when you're there? Without trying to persevere? Just quickly go. Of course. It's very important. If you're going to answer that question, you answered it, answered it perfectly, but there's an uh, aspect that is very important. If you're going to wonder if it's always there, and mm-hmm. you, do you only get grace and peace when you're there? <clears throat> the question, the answer is this. <clears throat> grace is, full grace is connected to the covenant. Covenant is the agreement between the Father and the Son. And it's their agreement. So because we are baptized into Messiah, we come into, we are in Him, so we come into their relationship. <clears throat> we come into their agreement. That's the safe place. Okay. Before you are in Messiah, and that only happens when you have in your heart believed to the degree that you surrender your life to Him, your existence, your breath. You give back to Him. You put it in His hands. You again entrust your existence, your thoughts to Him. So with other words, you lay down your own will, your own life, and you believe that He is the giver of life, is the one that gave you breath that you should bring it back to Him and give it back to Him. Now that we do in baptism. Before baptism, grace only exists in this form towards you. <clears throat> grace is the working of God bringing you to the place where you are ready and able to give your life back to Him. Does that make sense? So grace is working towards the person that's not yet in Messiah only in one way. He will give you some understanding about God and about yourself and and the kingdom through grace just to help you come to the place of laying down your life, dying to yourself, being baptized into Messiah. That's it. And peace are not possible in its fullness before the time because you do not yet have covenant. It's like a contract. It's like the you are, according to your birth certificate, 
you've been born in South Africa, but you become an official citizen when you get your ID. Okay, does it make sense? So you live here, but you cannot vote. Can you vote? No. Can you open a bank account? Can you buy a house? No. Not without your mother and father signing. So grace is like that. You can worship God, you can pray to God, you can sit in church, but you're not yet part of the kingdom. So in reality, the kingdom of God, if we get baptized into Messiah because of covenant, the peace, we become citizens of heaven. So right now, you are allowed to stand just outside the door and uh, someone will pass you some food through the door from the kingdom, but you're not allowed to go in. doesn't make sense. And so grace, being included, you have to be inside. So it's the ring wall or the family circle. But if you, without baptism, you can't be included yet. doesn't make sense. Um, and that's very important to understand. So, right now, full grace and full peace cannot be available to any person. It's a matter of fact, a person that is drawn by grace to God, to that place, and you start realizing, oh, well, I have to believe in God, I have to trust God, I have to surrender my life, but something is keeping you from it. Peace will start to decrease. Everybody hear that? Peace will become less and less and less. Every, anybody noticed that in life before you got baptized? <laughs> Some reason, the harder you try, the tougher it gets. Um, when you were 10, you were happy. By the time you reached 14, you were depressed. How did that happen? Peace will decrease. The longer we resist God, the less peace. So that's, that's to answer that question very clearly. This will not long-term be available to the person that is outside of Messiah. It will become more and more unavailable. It's very important to understand that. Sorry for the inter- interruption. Okay. You're still the boss. <laughs> okay. So, today's teaching. We've asked Sulani to teach again because obviously she started her own discipleship that's going well. And so we want to keep the momentum going. But also because we've noticed that everyone else really seems to enjoy it. So we're hoping that the truth gets through when we let Sulani say it. (laughs) No, I'm joking. But I know we all enjoy Sulani teaching as well. So welcome back, Zulani. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So since the Lord is obviously very intent on the process that he's follow- following, we are not going to move camp until he tells us to. So we're going to linger here as long as we can mine uh, wisdom. And only then, when the Lord has given us everything and we've used and eaten the whole portion, then we will move along. But that's not today. Okay, so we're looking again at, um, at the process and the way the process works. And I'm sure for all of us, when, even, even before we started intensively looking at the scripture and how everything fits together, I'm sure in all of us, in our personal Bible study time, whenever we would come across this piece of scripture, we could identify that it is obviously important. 
we could understand that if we look at all of these elements that, he, that the apostle names, faith, virtue, knowledge, all of those, we can see every element in its individual capacity is obviously important, valuable. We can see why we have to add them. But we see as important, as important as the Apostle Peter makes these elements and explains to us, if he says, add this, add this, add this, obviously he's identifying that these are the important ones to add. We see that equally as important, he makes the, um, the ordering of the way we implement them. So not only are the elements themselves important to implement in our spiritual lives and in our walk to maturity, the order in which we do it is just as important. Because obviously, for, for many of us, I'm sure we look at all these elements and, and uh, where we start, we feel, well, my understanding of this is more than... Maybe my under, I feel my understanding of perseverance is more than virtue. So if it were up to me, I would try and implement perseverance before any of the others because... We feel our, the human mind works in a way that the more I understand something, the more correctly I can respond to it. Mm. Today we're going to look a bit at that dynamic. And so if it were up to us, we would, just, we would probably all have a different ordering of implementing it. But we do see that the Apostle Peter makes the order of it very important. And we're going to look today at why the order is so important as well. Okay. So when we started with this process, we see the very first element, I'm calling them elements, like this, fine, is faith. But the important thing to notice with faith is it doesn't say add faith. Faith isn't something we conjure up. Faith isn't something we can decide to have. Faith isn't even something we can search out and uh, implement. It's not something we can decide to walk in. Faith is given. That's why he starts with, to those who have obtained, like precious faith. So faith is always received. And now we have done a lot of studies of faith. We will still continue to do them into the future, but for the sake of time, I'm going to just look at the synopsis. So in its essence, we understand faith as a reference to the as a revelation of resurrection. Resurrection, even though it sounds simple, we know is one of the most complicated truths in the Bible in the sense that it entails everything that's true in the eternal kingdom forever and ever. So, for the sake of today's study, we're going to look at faith in this way. I'm going to interrupt you. Yes. I'm sorry. No. Just quickly for the sake of everybody, just highlight... If we don't get that process right, if we don't improve, what does mm-hmm. he say is the consequence of the negative? Oh, yes. Okay. yes. Okay. What, so, what will motivate us to actually take this seriously? Because okay. the motivation lies in the fact that he says there is very serious consequences mm-hmm. if we don't do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we uh, do not implement these steps, then it says here that um, barrenness, in fact, will be ours on fruitfulness. Oh, 2 Peter uh, 1 verse 8. So it says that if you do not implement these, if these are in fact not yours and they do not abound, then uh, you will be barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach. Um, 
It also says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. What, what happens when you start forgetting that your sins have been cleansed? You lose vision. And, then what and focus on yourself and you start feeling self-condemnation. You uh, fall back into all the things that you were cleansed of previously because that's what you all of a sudden again remember. So as you start losing sight and you become blind, you start feeling like you can't see the things of God anymore. You can't see your own potential anymore. You can't see your calling. You can't perceive your calling clearly anymore. You can't perceive the destiny that He had for you anymore. Then you can't uh, have access to the hope. The hope that for any person that started believing, this hope that forms in you. All of a sudden that hope becomes darkened. And before you know it, you're looking at your circumstances. This, that which is close because you become short-sighted. And what's the life experience then? It's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> such a wonderful experience. We want to repeat it over and over and over because it's so wonderful. No joy. No hope. It's like, you know you shouldn't have any thoughts of um, uh, committing suicide because you are a Christian, but yet it feels like you want to, but you can't. So you don't even have hope, that kind of hope. Okay, so I'm being dramatic. The fact is that the Bible says that you become short-sighted. That you cannot do anything if, you do, if you're not going to follow that process in sequence, that's what's going to happen. You will be barren. It's spiritual barrenness. With all your good works and all your trying to share your faith with others, you just cannot see any fruit where others are actually starting to live in the fullness of God as well. And unfruitful. I'm going to leave it there. Now, <laughs> we might be motivated to try. Okay. So for today, okay, um, faith given, faith resurrection. For today, we're going to look at faith in this way. Faith always, always, always first pertains to the eternal kingdom. So finished work, I'm going to say eternal kingdom. But obviously this also is a kingdom... And everything that it pertains. Okay. Everything that it implies. So always first the kingdom. Then, as we break down faith, um, because remember it is a road from, from the finished work towards me. So if we look at the road and we look at it backwards, it's always first about the eternal kingdom. Secondly, when we look at the dividing line of heaven and earth, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, the moment it just bounces over that line. It becomes the body. This includes not only the body that is alive in our generation, but it is generationally. So it refers to the entire salvation plan, the unveiling, the prophetic unfolding of God's plan and how it pertains to every generation of the body, the perfection of the bride, etc., etc. And then thirdly, faith is about his purpose for my life. And how my life fits into the plan and the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Solani, will you please explain to us, give us an example yes. of this from the Bible? Yes. Okay. Um, so, if we go and look in the Word, um, we can see that Abraham's life explains this and depicts this very well. Um, when the Lord, when Abraham meets the Lord, the first thing he shows Abraham is his eternal kingdom, is his finished work, the new Jerusalem, and all gathered into him. He shows Abraham the finished work, and that's what he beholds. Then the Lord comes, and he shows Abraham, on this side, his legacy. He comes and shows Abraham his descendants that he will have, what, he will, what his life entails here in context to the body, in context, in context to um, what he will leave behind within the body. And then the Lord comes, and he comes to Abraham, and only then he tells him what his own purpose is, the purpose for his own life, and he gives him a son, a son which then would go and um, continue within the plan of the body and then towards the eternal kingdom. And so since Abraham is the father of faith, his life is obviously, that's why we're, when we're going to look at faith, we're going to look at how the Lord did it in his life. So always first, the kingdom, then the body, then my life. If it goes in the other direction, then we can see how that's going to mess up quite a few things. If It's never from the perspective of how can my life benefit the body so that we can become a kingdom. Mm. You see? Because then the kingdom is dependent on my life. Mm. So it's a perspective thing. And so keep this in mind because everything we're going to do today is going to look at this ordering. So, Okay. Um, oh, so, okay. Another thing. Sulani, mm -hmm. can you, because... The reason we also asked Sulani to teach together on, on this specific teaching today is because we can all see that she's gone through, through this process to an extent that she's overcome and she's won enough authority to be able to witness to it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I'm going to do is ask her to witness from her own life so that she can impart and that we can, we can learn because it adds witness and it adds authority and it helps us to, to gain understanding. Okay. So, Silani, what happens if I try to implement self-control, but this isn't in place? Okay. Um, if we try and implement self-control, but we do not have this in place, um, we, in fact, don't have vision. We don't really know what we are putting self-control in place for. Why will we... Um, try and diminish and uh, kind of get our, our own will in line with his will if we do not know what that entails or why we are doing it at all. Um, so self-control, when we look at it, it's not just us. Um, self-control is not just us trying to uh, hold ourselves back or prohibit ourselves from doing the wrong thing is self-control when implemented in the correct way after putting in place these steps, um, which then brings us to vision and, and creates vision to see where we are headed towards. 
um, self-control can be implemented in the right way because we have a destination. We have a place to reach. And self-control, um, because our hearts are to reach the point that the Lord has prepared for us, we can implement self-control and, and redirect our own will to be in, in line with His and persevere within that. Um, so, okay. <laughs> so, can I go a little bit back? Is that fine? Okay. So, I know I've, I've said a lot of things now, but if these aren't in place, then self-control will still be um, implemented in my understanding of what it means on a worldly basis. Um, because I have not gone through the steps of faith, having vision given from Him. He shows and reveals the plan. Um, he shows and reveals His eternal kingdom. He shows and reveals um, His finished work in the New Jerusalem. So I have vision, and I can start then going towards virtue, which enables me to, to implement and walk out what he has shown me um, in context to uh, what I have now learned, and then having the courage to submit my own will to be in line with that which he has shown me, and then going towards knowledge to further understand that which he has given to me. So if I go through, these pro through this process and return and do it again, I can move on and implement self-control upon my own will and persevere therein. And the reason we see that this process starts with faith is because obviously there's no, if there's no motivation, if there's no goal, if there's no reason for me to push towards, to push through this process, then, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. So for instance, self-control, perseverance, every single element we're going to see depends on the faith, the vision, mm -hmm. that which I can see, that which I can behold, that which I know is true eternally. Okay, mm -hmm. so we always need a goal to move towards. So... Um, so we're not going to explain faith any more than that. And in preparation, we all felt that the Lord is placing a lot of emphasis on virtue. Now we did, yes? I'm going to interrupt. Because there can be a goal. If we have not been taught, led, according to the scripture, just uh, the Apostle Peter gives us this process of discipleship. But it's not a widely taught process of discipleship, although he makes it very clear that you've got to add this to that to that. You've got to add to your faith, virtue, and then knowledge. If this is not in place, if we don't have the vision that the reason we're going to do this, the motivation is that, uh, according to what he showed Abraham, there's the new Jerusalem. Oh, there's all your children and their children and their children, generations of them in the New Jerusalem, according to resurrection. And this is why I want you to leave your father and your home, homeland where you live. Go to another place that you don't even know where it is. There I'm going to give you an inheritance. If that is not in place, then we come into church, we come to faith, and then we will find motivations. We've all been there. What motivations will we find? I want to be a better person. I want to be 
for me, a good Christian. It happens. We have to find some motivation, right? We, nobody has to find what the motivation should be. So I'm going to be better. Then we hear about the gifts. Oh, I might have a prophetic gift. I want to be the prophet. And then I go like, I want to be a leader in church. That could motiv- be highly motivational. I want to be... So you come into church and you sit in the back. Then as you get used to the church, you go and you move to the middle. You feel more like, I belong. Okay? But you see the crowd, those people in front. And man, when you come, it's not even leadership, just the people in front. You come into any church, there's some people there. They must have been there a long time because they all know each other. When you come in church, you see them there. And they, they get along so well. They love each other. They're the picture of Christian love and belonging. And they're so comfortable. And they look so peaceful and comfortable and joyous. And they just like, they found their place. That place we all long for. A place to belong, to be known, to be understood, to have purpose. And those people have found that. And we watch them from the back. In the beginning, we don't want to be noticed. Like, I'm not good yet. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm so full of sin. And I'm still doing all these things. But they are going to become my motivation. Besides, there's the pastor guy. I mean, that guy is holy and perfect. And, you know, and he's going to motivate me. Isn't it? And then the next form of motivation can come in. I want to impress them. I want them to see that I'm here and know that I'm here and they've got to see all the potential that I carry. And then one day, the pastor comes over to me because I've been in church now four times and he's noticed the new guy because his job is to notice the new guy. I don't know that. So he comes over and he says, Hello, how are you? And he says, We must have coffee one day. I'm like, Yes, I'm in. (laughs) Okay. Now I will be highly motivated by everything that's not this. So we've got to understand that we're not saying we've got to we've got to differentiate that if this these motivations are not in place, there will be other motivations that are worldly, that are self-focused. What I'm trying to say is, all those motivations will be about me. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I won't admit it to myself. I will insist that all those motivations are about God. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn. I'm going to get better in the Word. I start memorizing verses. I'm doing it for God. No, I'm doing it so that I will fit in better. And they'll like me and accept me. And one day I'm going to be a leader. Then I'm going to be an elder. And then I start even desiring to be a pastor one day. So many young people, when they come to salvation, they just want to be in ministry in some form or way. Okay, so now I start reading the Bible so that I can be better at the Bible so that I can reach my goal of being one of them. Kingdom. His glory. Eternal perspective, that's no longer really my motivation, is it? I am my motivation. So that's very important that we put that in place. This is why this true faith, biblical faith, having a revelation of the kingdom there and me in the kingdom as part of the godly family, that we have to develop first, understanding that. So that all that that cancels out all the other motivations. Then virtue. That, why virtue second? Because virtue is innocent courage, mm. not selfish effort. Mm. I'm gonna stop there. <laughs>
Okay. So. <clears throat> okay, so we did start looking at virtue a bit, well, last Sunday, and then we looked at it a bit on Thursday evening, and uh, today we're going to spend a bit more time just exploring virtue, but we both are in a bit of a difficult position in trying to teach this and manifest this, because uh, virtue comes before knowledge, which means that in understanding virtue, that's not going to ignite virtue. So virtue become, comes before, before knowing what it is, understanding what it is. So we're going to try and explain virtue, but not spark our brains, not spark the knowledge. Because understanding virtue isn't going to impart virtue or ignite virtue. Does that make sense? So we're in a bit of a tight spot, but we're going to give it our best go, and we'll see how it works. Okay, so to start off, we looked at virtue on Thursday evening, and we said, okay, um, the definition, and this is part of the reason why we can't look at it from a knowledge perspective. The definition in any good, trustworthy dictionary for virtue would be moral excellence. Now, moral excellence, we said the definition comes from a Greek Greek background, which means that it's somewhat abstract, uh, which is weird because a definition by definition should be concrete. And yet we see that through time, applications, because the meanings of words change in context to culture, etc., etc., um, there's always definitions tend to be subjective, even though it is supposed to be concrete. And so if we look at moral excellence and we try to apply this to the Bible and to the Word and we look at moral excellence from a biblical perspective, it should then refer to moral excellence would be perfection or something really close to it. Which would make no sense because this is only the second step in the process. What's the point of a process if we're going to start with excellence, with moral excellence, with perfection? See where the problem comes in. So it can't be that. Okay. Now, the second thing to notice is that we, although the process starts with faith, faith is given. Virtue is the first adding element. It's our first response. It's the first thing that starts with us responding. So we know the Lord gives us a revelation of faith, but then there's a response. And virtue is that response. Okay, so... The two of us are going to, from our own lives, try and explain the way we, in retrospect, the way we can now see the Lord led us through this process of virtue. Okay, so Silani, will you please <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> explain okay. to us? All right. Um, okay, so when I came to faith and met the Lord, went through baptism... Um, my experience of the renewal was great. It was uh, very evident, um, had made a big impact. It was wonderful. Um, only by the Lord's grace was I able in the beginning to, you know, move through these steps put in place. 
And as time went on, very close to the beginning, the gifts started working. I had revelation within the word. I understood I could, um, you know, relay it to others. It was wonderful. The prophetic gift came. I mean, it was a blast. It was was fantastic. (laughs) And um, as time went on, and I had to start implementing these things. I had to start implementing adding virtue um, and going through that. I, all of a sudden, was faced with the true desires of my heart. So the Lord, before I continue within that, the Lord came and he took away the giftings. He took away understanding. He took away the wisdom I had within the first time. Everything was gone. Um, And I went through a time of, you know, you wonder what is happening. Um, And he really showed me what my heart's desires was. And I realized that although whilst having these amazing gifts and revelation and wisdom, I told myself and thought, I want this so that I can serve the body, so that I can add to the body. But when he took it away, I realized that although I thought I wanted to serve the body with this, I in fact desired the gifts. I wanted the gifts. I enjoy moving within the gifts. And I realized I wanted the gifts for myself so that I could be better, so that I can help the body, so that I can minister to the body, so that I can bring worth to the body. Um, And... When that was revealed, it was quite a bit of a shock. (laughs) Um, And I think within this process, I had to go through and really search my heart that now that I know this is here, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back? Am I going to look at what he has given me and move within who I saw I am but only through him. So who I saw I could be in his will and within his plan, but understanding I can only be this if it's him. If it's not me, I won't be adding to the body. I can't minister to the body. I can't be this amazing prophet. It's not how it works. It's in fact through his resurrection through his justification through his righteousness through his innocence Mm. and through implementing courage to embrace him as being that in me I was able to continue again and move to further understand him to further get to know him to further get to know his will his plan and then return again and continue within that way So just practically, uh, while you were in that process, I'm sure, because obviously when we look at virtue, it is a bit of a hazy, the hazy spot in this line of of elements. Um, So I'm sure, because you knew you had faith, you knew he had revealed the plan to you, and you knew there was potential. Uh, Did you try in an effort to, because obviously you were aware of the fact that you, were, you felt a bit stuck. Yes. And obviously then you tried to progress as well as you could. Yes. 
So how did it work trying to then add knowledge? <laughs> Man, <laughs> it was not fun. Um, Were you able to truly acquire godly knowledge? No, I was able to acquire knowledge, but in fact not godly knowledge. Um, and it sparked a sense of pride, a sense of, but I know what the word says. Surely this must be true. I know it, this is what it says. Um, and I'm sure because you're a, you're a good person. <laughs> Obviously, you try to implement self-control. How'd that work yes. out for you? No, terrible. <laughs> it was, uh, didn't go well. Um, interesting enough, um, I could identify where I was stuck. I could identify why I was stuck. And I somehow even could identify more or less what I needed to do to not be stuck. And yet, I didn't implement it. I didn't do it. And I still just grabbed for the word. I just was like, but at least I can read, you know. At least I, I can just read. Maybe this will help me in a different way. Um, yeah. So, and then it took you, obviously, a process of repentance. Yes. And then you mentioned so. the courage. Yes. So then in the end, what it took for you to progress was the courage mm. to let go of all mm. your motivations and the desires of your heart and progress yes. into his, his yeah. will and his ways. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay, so, yes. To just highlight that with everything you try, you need to go back to the next step that he gave you. Yeah. Yes. That sequence. Mm. And this is, so this is mm. part of what we, so... As important as knowledge is, it's not going to mean anything. You won't be able to progress into knowledge if you actually haven't gone and implemented virtue. Mm. It will feel like knowledge, but it will be worldly knowledge. Mm. It will be the flesh acquiring knowledge. It won't be the knowledge of God. Self-control won't truly be available. It will just be a sense of keeping a steadfastness but it won't come mm. from a godly place mm. and this is the thing it was established by the apostle and no one is going to find a loophole and progress in some of the other areas if some if there were things that were left behind and not implemented correctly the lord by his grace will prohibit mm. us progressing in disorder mm. may i add something quickly mm. that so um you said if you don't go through virtue and through the courage going to knowledge. I just realized that when you just straight when you just try and skip virtue and you go straight to knowledge, that thing happens where you start reading the word for yourself. Um, so you start reading it so that you can be, be feel better, so that you can be better, so that you can once again be in his presence, so that you it's all for you. It might feel right at the time because you want to get to him, you know, you I don't want it to be like this, I want to be better. Um, and then the self-control again is for you, um, and the, the vision just shifts and it's and it falls back onto you. So, when I met the Lord, by His grace, I knew nothing. So there was no knowledge. Um, and quite early on in in the process, uh, just like straight after my baptism, somewhere. Mune and I had a discussion and he actually pointed me to this specific piece of scripture because I thought I was, you know, because the world opened up, 
God was real, the kingdom was real, angels, angels were real, everything was real. And I was so excited and I was like, yes, I'm progressing, the world is opening up to me. And uh, we had a discussion and I think I was trying to, to ask him indirectly, how far in the process does he think I've, I've grown? And he was like, oh yes, you're in step number two. You are with virtue now, adding virtue. And, uh, and he said, don't, this is the process, but you can't move on from there until you've added virtue. And I went, awesome. And I left. And he didn't explain to me what virtue was or how to implement it. And I didn't think to ask. And that was the first few months of my journey. Now, this could only have been by the grace of the Lord so that I can understand the way the process is supposed to work. But so, like I said, I, I had no knowledge of the word. I didn't know where what was. And, um, but like I said, when I realized that, that God was real, I was filled with an absolute excitement um, because not only was he real, but I understood that he had called me. He'd called me to him, uh, which means he wanted me. And the fact that he called me and I responded and I went through baptism and he poured his spirit out of me and I was in the spirit meant that he existed somewhere and I existed somewhere and he wanted me to be with him so now I could get to him. So I was on this mission I knew that he called me and I knew he gave me his Holy Spirit and somewhere in the spirit I was in him, but that was not enough for me. I needed to get to him at all costs. I needed greater revelation. I needed to see him. I needed to see him in his glory. I needed to move through the realms and get into his kingdom. I needed to hear the angel choirs worshiping him going around the throne. So I spent months pouring over the word, not trying to get to know the word. I just needed the Bible to tell me how to get there. So... I didn't have to understand how, I didn't need to understand why. I just went, this is what it says, I'm going to do it because I need to get to him. And um, in my search and trying to, to, to just walk out these instructions, and I thought the Bible was going to tell me, okay, now you can do this next and that's how you get there and this is going to open that up. It did something that I didn't expect. Um, when there was instruction that I could find, I would try to implement it at all costs. But what it did in the process, it, it, in my search to find out how I could get closer to him, how I could move through the realms and get to where he was, he started revealing me that what was holding me back was not my lack of, of doing things. It was my own person, what was still in me. So I was holding myself back. So I would have sessions with Monet where I would spend time in the Word and then the Lord would reveal to me that I'm full of pride. So I would go, Monet, I need to see you. I'm full of pride. You need to get it out of me. I need to get to God. <laughs> if I don't get rid of the pride, then he's not going to want me and I need to get it out to deliver me. And uh, we would have sessions where I would show up and I would cry, I would sob, I would beg him to just tell me, how do I get rid of pride? Um, there was one time where I was struggling with jealousy and I told him, but he's not going to want me if I'm a jealous being. How do I get rid of jealousy? And um, so I was spending time in the word. I was getting to know what he wanted, but the motivation wasn't to, to grow in knowledge or even to become godly. It wasn't to control myself. I had none of these motivations. My sole motivation was to get to where he was and not... The thing I was most afraid of was that I would end up getting to an idol version of, 
of God because I knew I wanted him so much and I knew I was in danger of that. So I was really testing my heart all the time because I was so frightened of, of in my search, ending up with an idle picture and then I miss out on the real thing anyway. So my motivation was to get to God, but get to him truly in his kingdom. And I knew that if I got to him and it was really his kingdom, then I would know. So I didn't stop. <laughs> and that was the first few months. And then once the Lord moved me into the next process of starting to acquire knowledge, I'd already spent so much time in the word that the knowledge part actually was, was fairly easy. Um, because I'd already accepted that whatever he said, whatever he wanted me to do, I'd, I'd do it. Um, and so then gr him granting understanding and knowledge that that was actually very easy after that. And so that brings us to, to virtue, not as a definition, not as necessarily an understanding, but as a truth. You see, he reveals to us faith. He reveals to us the kingdom. He reveals to us his plan. He reveals to us the purpose of our life. And then virtue is our response to that. But in essence, virtue is going to be the test of the motivations of heart. See, if he reveals faith to anyone, there's going to be a response. Even no response is a response. Virtue is going to test why. Why are you responding? Mm -hmm. Why do you want what he's shown you? Why do you want to move to what is revealed to you. He's making it available to you. So it's not that he doesn't want it for you, but why do you want it? Why do you want to move towards the goal? And this is, this is what it tests, more the motivations of the heart. So virtue is not him expecting you to be perfect. He doesn't even expect the motivations of your heart to, all, to be all perfect because this is only the second part of the process. You're still going to show up here in your imperfection. But if... If you move through virtue and it reveals that your heart will choose his will and his ways above your own motivations, mm -hmm. if your heart chooses to, to move in the ways of God in that way, then, and only then, can you, can, will he grant you access to the rest of the process. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And so in essence, and that's why we started def defining or calling virtue as... as um, courageous innocence so it's not my innocence even though I, I have been baptized and he's washed me clean it's his innocence in me because obviously you're going we all faced with our own motivations and desires of our own hearts but what virtue is going to test and ask is are we courageous enough to respond to his innocence are we courageous enough to lay down our own motivations and our own desires and go through what he has prepared for our lives. Does that make sense? So, if, in an effort to understand the substance of virtue, and we know that virtue is his virtue, you're going to have to help me. So first, first thing to understand and remember is that when we come to him and we respond, our first response is a faith response. And we trust that he will resurrect us 
if we are willing to die in baptism, and the way that we die in baptism is to come and to admit our absolute guilt, that we are dead in sin, and that there's only one hope, the hope of His righteousness and His mercy towards us, His grace towards us in calling us to Him so that He will forgive our sins and resurrect us into eternal life. That was the first faith response. Now we've got to understand then that the virtue step is His innocence and purity. His purity, His innocence, exhibited through the courage that He had to implement. His innocence, his virtue, that came to earth because he courageously were willing to become human. <clears throat> then courageously were willing to live on earth for 30 years. He was a carpenter. The son of God, the king of kings. The one who would have all authority and dominion. He himself said he could call out and um, armies, hosts of Ten thousands of angels would come to his. Assistance in a second. Yet he believed that the father's plan. The father's will was so perfect. That he would come. And live as man. On earth for 30 years. His ministry only began at 30. His priesthood began at 30. He would work as a carpenter. And yet he had to do that innocently in the sight of God. Then he went through the trial of the ministry that he had to go through. They wanted to kill him all the time, rejected him all the time. How heartbreaking would it have been for him to come and, and, and try and reveal the knowledge of God. <clears throat> so we would come and ex proclaim the wonderful will and truth of Yahweh and have to see humanity rejected and um, embrace their own prideful knowledge and ways. And then ultimately, of course, he had to go through everything that's connected to the cross and his dying. Um, more than that, if you want to even get a glimpse of what the substance of virtue would be, is on the cross, after all that they've done to him, after all that... Um, he had to endure. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done and they're doing. So just a, a hope that it's expanding our own perception of, of virtue. And so we're not going to <clears throat> just get stuck at the point where he proclaimed us innocence, he, innocent, he justified us, he washed us with his blood. It becomes a returning to that point all the time. His virtue. His standard of virtue. Okay. We've got to understand that it was courageous, powerful. Another very important, I have to put this in place, and this is what the, that experience was. All the stuff that could motivate us, all the idols in our in our human life that could sway us. George Washington, who was it, that said, what, no man has such virtue as to 
um, resist the highest bidder. No man has such virtue as to resist the highest bidder. See, this is what it boils down for each and every one of us. When his brothers tempted him, he turned his back on his brothers. He did not forsake the sacrifice on the cross for the sake of him loving his mother. Could not have been easy hanging on the cross, willing to die when your mother is the one crying in agony. What was he looking at from his vantage point on the cross? That's why he teaches us, you you have to forsake mother and father and brothers and sisters. And then the big idol, children, for parents, children. See, this is in these areas where virtue will get tested. Really tested. No, I will not forsake the truth. I will not compromise on the truth of who God is, the truth of His plan, the truth of who the Lord is and what He has called me to for the sake of my children, for the sake of no other thing. So can we just very quickly reconsider this step? We have to return, repeat and redo on many levels. So when he was tempted, he was offered power and riches, everything that you could imagine. Virtue is the lesson that we get out of the temptation of Messiah. Virtue. Courage. And the courage comes out of what? Knowing. So that's what happened with you, that you could get through it without knowledge. Vision. Looking at the right thing. Did vision develop for you eventually? Eventually. (laughs) Um, Vision started to develop within me um, when I was willing to lay down my own will when I was willing to embrace what I could perceive, um, no matter how small it was. Um, I told Nadia, I had a session with them one day, and um, before that specific session, vision, my perception and understanding of vision was I need to see, as in picture. I need to under, you know, like I need to see the picture where I'm going towards, what I should look like, you know, what is it that he has prepared in a very clear visual form. So, like an actual vision or a trance. Yes, like an actual. That was. <laughs> and unless he grants you that, you're in trouble. <laughs> yes, and I was in trouble. <laughs> and um, I remember I'd, I'd, this didn't come up, but she mentioned that. You should always remember that vision is understanding. And that changed so much for me. Because I then realized if I could just understand who he is, just as a start, and move towards that, if I can start, as soon as I started understanding Messiah-likeness and and just endeavoring to walk that out in my life, with that which he supplied to me, um, vision started to increase. Um, As soon as I embraced everything he has put in my life, from 
um, teachings here in the Word, up into what He's provided for me within my work life, within my life outside, my interactions with whomever it may be, whatever He has placed in my life, to seek and understand why it is there and where it is leading me towards and what He has prepared for me within that already as preparation for what is ahead to then ultimately reach the end of the eternal kingdom, I had to understand the body on this side and how I fit into it. But I had to have the courage to simply just walk out what I understood at that stage, to implement what I knew, to implement these steps within what I understood at that stage. And slowly but surely, he has started to increase my vision and my understanding um, within his eternal kingdom, within his body, and then also within my own personal life. So would you mind explaining to us how knowledge fits into this process? Yes, you can assist now and then. No. Okay, um, so once I moved through the faith and, and the virtue to embrace what I understood and actually implement and start walking it out, I needed to go back to a place and understand what this means. How do I do this? And this happened in reading the Word because there He explains who He is. He explains what steps are needed to take. I'm immediately reminded of uh, the principles. He within reading the word, principles are lifted out. How you ought to live, how you ought to walk. And once that has come and increased and I understood the plan and what he has shown me, I once again had to go back, virtuously check my heart. Um, is my heart in the right place? Am I desiring these things for the right reasons? Why do I want to implement the principles? What is the purpose? Is it for myself or is it for His purposes to get closer to Him, to walk in His will for my life according to what He has prepared? Um, and so it's a continual cycle, faith, virtue, knowledge, where knowledge it increases and gives way, increases the understanding of what He shows you so that you can have the courage to implement it within your life. So who here with the initial revelation of faith knew and understood exactly what He showed you? When that first spark of, oh, something's happening, how many of us completely understood and knew, oh, this is what's happening. He's showing me this. He's showing me that. He's showing me the plan. This is how it works. That happened with anyone? No? <laughs> okay, so we all understand that he gives us faith, but, 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 but there's no knowledge. There's no nothing. So even with that initial faith giving from his side, let's face it, none of us knew what was happening. We didn't understand anything. We just knew that a response was necessary. So the very beginnings of this cycle, of this process, is very small. He's going to show me something. I'm not going to know or understand what it is, but my heart is going to respond. And this is what virtue is. It's the heart's response. And only once we get through that do we get to a place. Once we've gone through the virtue step in the correct way and we've implemented and we can now progress, 
Then only do we get to a place where he's going to start to reveal to us, to help us know and understand what it is that he showed us in the beginning. So now we start to increase in knowledge, we start to increase in understanding from the word, from discipleship, from, from members of the body. Now we can start growing in our understanding. Oh, this is what he showed me. But obviously this is going to lead me back to faith because the more I understand it, obviously this is bringing me back here. But now once I find myself at faith, I can't go just back to knowledge. I have to go through virtue again because this is the order and there's only one order. But now, because I have a greater understanding over here, the, the walk through virtue is also going to be greater. And then, the revelation that I'm going to receive, or the knowledge and the understanding I'm going to receive, is going to be greater, but this leads me back to faith. And so this is a conveyor belt, not separate from that, but in some way, on its own, because it continuously grows. But as it grows... It adds to virtue one of the sub-elements of virtue that is called weight. Mm -hmm. So in the studies of virtue throughout time, one of the elements of virtue that has been identified is a sense of gravity. Do you want to explain to us how that gravity works um, on the road the, that we walk? Okay. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. So uh, once weight gets increased and authority increases through the implementation of virtue um, there's a sense a sense of groundedness settles in within the road that we are walking um, now that we can now start perceiving the road and we in fact have we have the weight to keep us on that road to continue on that road so not only, so obviously as we move through knowledge and the faith increases, we are able to a greater and greater extent perceive the road in front of mm -hmm. us. Now obviously, I'm sure for all of us, it's much easier to stay on a road that we can see. Okay, mm -hmm. so the clearer the vision gets, the easier it is to stay on the road, theoretically. But now, virtue adds another element in me. So not only does the road become clearer, but as I move through this virtue step every single time from revelation to virtue, it adds a weight in me because I've grown in authority because of the motivations of the heart that are being brought in line. They're not necessarily pure when they start out, but the response of the heart is to come in line with the will and the ways of God. Because of that, because of the denying of self, because of the laying down of self-will, because of the choosing against oneself, mm. you, a person can grow in authority, mm. can grow in capacity, and we experience this as a growing in, in weight. It's like one feels heavier. You feel you carry, you carry more of the substance in you, more of a godly mm. substance in you. It, 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 it manifests in a feeling of steadfastness. In the beginning of our walk, any kind of wave or wind or breeze can knock us over fairly easy. Even if we can see the road, even if we know there's a road. Because of our lack of weight, because of our weightlessness, we are moved and shoved and pushed around fairly easily. And it's not even that someone has to push us, we might just trip and fall. But as we go through this process, the weight in us increases. And this gives us a sense of gravity, a sense of centeredness and a sense of steadfastness. And so it becomes easier to stay on the road. Even if there are trials and tribulations and things coming from everywhere, the more we move through this, 
the easier it gets to, to stick to the road. So mm-hmm. Sulani, for instance, as she moved through the process in the beginning, we all experienced the easiness to fall around. Mm-hmm. But then we could, we could all perceive in her as she started implementing the principles. As, and it, was, it wasn't even a complicated thing. As she moved through the process of repentance, des- denying her own motivations and her own desires, implementing simple principles and continuing in that again and again and again, we could actually sense the weight in her increase. And now we all know that Zulani is one of the steadfast members that we can turn to, to, to kind of center even ourselves. So if we feel shaky, we know that she has become one of the pillars that we can look to and know she won't shake. She can help us stay grounded. Do we see? And so this isn't even for our own process. We do this for the body because we witness to each other that there is a time, there does come a place where we can actually become steadfast. There's no need to fall around anymore. And we we can witness that to each other, which becomes even a greater encouragement for all to walk out this process. Does that make sense? Makes sense. You don't have to take your uh, thing off. In closing, so you. Which I much to say. <laughs> okay. It's always like that. Okay. So we know that you went through this process, and then everything started to align, like the alignment on a car's wheels when it's done. It's not going to one side or the other. <clears throat> and then we went to Vietnam. <laughs> And how quickly after we landed <coughs> did you have to start implementing this in a very tight circle? Very immediately. <laughs> Easy, wasn't it? No. <laughs> what happened in Vietnam? What made it difficult? Oh, uh, my own will, <laughs> my own desire. So, yeah, you were doing better. You started implementing mm. the steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all saw that you were now on the, uh, again on the road. Vision was established again, and you looked like you were flying. And you did fly, and then you landed. <laughs> <laughs> Very abruptly. <laughs> and that's why we warned everybody before. And so it was the oh. desires of the heart that you realized, okay, now something. What was it that manifested? Sure. So many things, but on my own will, just I just was faced with what my heart really wanted and how much of what how I want to do things is still a reality. And what enabled you eventually? Because <laughs> you came through pretty well. Pretty well, <laughs> congratulations. What enabled you in the end to stick to the process? What motivated you? My motivation to just continually come back in line was I wanted to hear his voice. I wanted to be available at all costs, at all times. I wanted to know when he's moving and where he's moving so that I can move with him. I wanted to know him. I wanted to be available for him to change me so that I can when I have depreciated so much, come back and minister to those people. Because I realize that if I truly, truly want to serve his body, then I will have to decrease.
quite a bit more. <laughs> and I want that with all my heart. So is there any way, if the motivation truly is to serve the body, that even with the greatest motivation to serve the body, mm -hmm. do you think you'd be able to do that if you didn't go through this process? Definitely not, no. So you had to implement self-control, you had to respond to that vision. Mm -hmm. So you were responding to something you were looking at. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Somewhere you said, there's all these things happening in my desires, I'm being triggered and tested mm -hmm. in so many ways in the flesh, and the thing that <clears throat> enabled you to choose self-control and perseverance was that you were looking at something. Mm -hmm. yes. It wasn't about you anymore. Mm -hmm. There was his kingdom, his plan, the future possibility of you mm. as part of the body and the kingdom mm. being able to serve the body. Mm. And so in, uh, through those days that you were tested, you... you could enter into self-control. Although it wasn't yeah. easy. We're still feeling all the temptation. Mm. But remember, sin isn't when you're tempted. Just because you're feeling the temptation doesn't mean that you've done wrong or that you have fallen or stumbled. Mm. So when actually we are experiencing the temptation, we're still okay. We can hold our position. And that's all you have to do right then. And the thing that enabled her to get through it was the virtue that had been practiced mm -hmm. and established in her before. And that virtue was simply courage to stay innocent according to his plan, that vision. Mm -hmm. It's the big picture vision that enables us here to get through it. And if we don't develop, if he doesn't develop for us the big picture vision of his kingdom, the reality of his kingdom, the reality of His glory and us as part of the glory, <coughs> the body, the big picture, and then that's when we don't get through the tests. And in virtue we have to deny ourselves and we have to turn our back on every other idol and desire. That's what virtue will demand. If we do have, if we have, the truth of virtue in the heart cannot be denied and cannot be faked. If the virtue is not there, compromised upon, you cannot pretend that it's not there. It will show. Mm -hmm. And it will simply show by a person giving into your own will. Mm -hmm. You will go, I know that the kingdom is important and I know that the will of God is important, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. I'm still going to say what I want to say. I'm going to choose myself. That's the opposite of virtue. <clears throat> Those that have remained in the process of discipling, no matter how well they've done or not well they've done, they've been coming back to a place of virtue, and that's what kept them going. Every time people fall away from and they go back to the comfort of religion, it's usually because they're somewhere along the way they've chosen one of their idols. There was a bidder that made a high enough bid. And it could be grandchildren or children. It's usually, it's the big, big one. Big one. It's not even money most of the time. <clears throat> Although I've seen elders give up the call of God because their business were growing so phenomenally when the blessing came that they decided to go back into business and spend all their time there. This happens. 
everything finds a balance within the will of God. I'm going to ask you in closing down. Do you want to ask a question? Can I? Yes, 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 yes. Actually, it's not a question. Yes. Um, if you now look at the kingdom or the body, and there can also be selfishness or a personal ambition in that. If you're not, this is not what I mm. But if you're motivated by love, that is a different story. Then you need. Because I think that many, many times people say, okay, I want to, you know what, I'm the focus is on the body. So I want to get somewhere because I, what I'm going to do in the body, you know, what is going to help many other people. But that is still ambition, like in the world. But if you're motivated by love, then you're out of the way. It's a good thing you're bringing it up. Where is love? If this, if we're saying this is a, <clears throat> a process put in by the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter and that it has to be implemented in sequence. Where is love in the sequence? Strange. And, 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 and in the beginning of studying this and trying to understand this, it really did cause a question to rise up in me. Because the way that when I came into church, <coughs> into discipling, the way that they were always teaching this is that love has to come first. Love is the important thing. But the Apostle Peter puts love right at the end. After godliness, you would think that this process would have godliness at the end, right? Because once you've reached godliness, that's the ultimate goal. <coughs> and there's a good reason for it. A very good reason for it. Because love is defined by the Bible itself, by the Word of God itself, as keeping God's commandments. And this, I believe, is one of the great corrections that will take place in God's true church uh, in the end days. Is that we will differentiate between humanistic love the humanistic love is what is currently being preached by the Christian world. It's all about love. Just love each other. It's the same kind of love that's preached by Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, and general um, humanism. That's the love we've got to watch out for. And that's why he places love here. Love the Lord your God. You cannot love the Lord your God if you cannot implement the commandments and live according to it. And the implementation of the commandments was his first step to show us virtue. Because virtue in relation to the commandments means that we are going to have to deny all our base desires. All our base responses. And so, then love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Why can I now love myself? Because I understand the righteousness of Messiah that has been imputed to me. And I understand that I will never have righteousness or attain to righteousness out of my own works or efforts. But I have His righteousness uh, imputed to me. And therefore, I can love myself despite of my shortcomings, but never because of what is good or have been achieved by me. can't love myself for that. I love myself because He deemed it good in His will to, to call me. 
to accept me, to justify me, and to receive me in Him. So I I'm fully love myself. There's no part of me that does not love me, yet I deny myself, because I love Him first. And this is a slight adjustment, and that is why we have to understand <clears throat> that when we try and take love from there, and put love in there, we are going to again have a false uh, motivation. Because that love will have to manifest through works. <clears throat> We've seen it in the Christian world will tell you everything you need to know. <clears throat> People come to faith and immediately <clears throat> excuse me, they try and respond by loving. So they run out and they go uh, start a soup kitchen. The problem is the people out there are not going to be grateful. <clears throat> They're not going to um, respond in the way that one would expect. And that process, when you start and try and implement love outside of the sequence, it's going to bring you to disappointment. Inevitably, there's going to be judgment that's awakened in us because we haven't been set free, free from through virtue in our hearts. And we'll go right back to a process of having to forgive people all the time yet. Uh, or we will have to try and do better, but the response is going to force us right out of humanistic love. So this process is still the best process. And this is a tight loop. We're not saying you have to take forever to get there, but you have to go through the knowledge of God. Of God. The knowledge is what He knows. Why was Yahushua able to forgive everybody on the cross? Because He knew the Father. He knew the grace and the will of the Father. He knew the judgment of the Father is righteous. He knew the Father. So the knowledge, that which God knows, that which the Son knows about the Father and the Father knows about the Son has to replace all that we know so that we will never fall back. So just this is a tight loop all the time. And we're not saying that you should take forever to get there. Godliness is understanding that you are baptized into Him. You are ultimately reconciled in Him and part of Him as the body. And that's why you can love the body. Because we no longer perceive each other according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because if you try and love the very beautiful, nice brother or sister that's with you in church, and you don't understand the big picture of us being reconciled in Him, made one in Him, then... It doesn't matter how nice that person is, you're going to find it very hard to love that person over a long period of time. We have to understand that I look at Leon and I look at his full potential because he's been accepted by God. He will be godly. God is going to perfect him. And that will enable me to love him even though maybe at times he's not even going to look very godly to me. And uh, the people around us can make us feel unwanted, unheard, un not understood, not appreciated. But because I know that I'm not going to look at them according to the flesh. I can't love. I cannot tell you that I love you the way you are. Because I don't. I, honestly, I, I'm not going to love you the way you are. But because I know that he's busy perfecting you, I'm able to love you for the perfection in Him. We've got to move past that idea that God loves us the way we are. He doesn't. Firstly, He wants to kill us. 
The first thing God does. This is love. We've got to understand love right. When God loved me, He came to me and said, I want you gone. There's nothing... There's nothing unconditional about God's love or grace. The word unconditional actually has been inserted by religion. Humanistic love and humanistic religion has brought the word, go look for the word unconditional in relation to God's love. You won't find it. I'll tell you why. The first um, picture of love or relationship that we see is his relationship with his first creation, Adam and Eve. And yet it's not unconditional. He says, you, I've provided all things for you. There's the tree of life. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not unconditional. Conditional. When they did eat, the unconditional obviously now is not in existence because God says the wages of sin is death. Not unconditional. Then the next time we see this is that uh, he comes to Abraham and it's not unconditional. He says, walk before me blameless. blameless. Mm. And then only after Abraham believed him and started walking, he cuts covenant with Abraham. And the Bible makes it very clear that he cuts covenant with himself, the son and the father. Not unconditional towards Abraham. Abraham still has to walk in faith. That's why you have chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. Where they are um, witnessed by God to have been faithful and have had faith because it wasn't unconditional. The unconditional doctrine we have to be careful about. I'll tell you why. Because of baptism. Uh, Yahushua comes and he says, lay down your life, give up your life, uh, hate your own life, uh, hate your family, your mother and your father, turn your back on them. Uh, the person comes and says, I want to follow you, but I first need to go and bury my father or my mother. And he says, let the dead bury themselves. See, the unconditional doctrine, we've got to be very careful to have it in the balance of the rest of the word. There's nothing unconditional about His love. He will, he, will, he will call us on the condition that we die in baptism and embrace resurrection, rebirth. That's the condition. Now, if I'm rebirthed in Him, now the condition is you have to stay in a process of renewing the mind so that we can get rid of whatever you thought and what you thought you were before. Conditional. Uh, look at how many times Paul and Peter writes, if you continue in the faith. Even the bearing fruit. He says that a branch in me that does not, does not bear fruit, what happens to it? It's cut off and thrown into the fire. So nothing unconditional there. You have to bear fruit. And so this is, this is so offending. The, the, the church world has actually excluded the whole, half the truth of the Bible uh, in favor of a humanistic idea of love. So I will come to the beggar, the sinner, the murderer in jail. I will come to them with the truth of the word of God, God's grace, his willingness to save. Okay. But if the person does not repent, I will stop loving him. If the person does not repent, long term, I will not walk with them. So what did, 
Yeah. What did Yahushua minister when he came? He said, repent. What was his first words? Repent. First message ever preached, repent. Who has to repent? So he calls you, he calls you and he draws you with cords to repentance. You see, we've got to be careful because why is there, if God wanted to save everybody and it was up to God, then why is everybody not saved? See, that's the repentance part. And so we're not saying that God isn't gracious. We're just saying we have to adjust our way of thinking to what the Word of God actually says. The Israelites had to what? They had to, if God led them out of slavery, then He offered them covenant, He fed them with manna, gave them water from the rock, and then what? They had to enter into the promised land. And when they didn't, So it cannot be unconditional. That's why you need to be discipled properly in understanding the relation between the covenants and the old covenant and the new covenant. Otherwise we will end up with ideas that are not biblical. doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as an old dispensation. Okay, I understand that because that's the way you've been taught. You see, you this is all. This is all because Christianity has taken. You've got to understand that the replacement theology has taken the Bible and divided it into now they call it two different testaments. When uh, the Old Testament is the beginning of the Word of God, and Yahushua, Peter, and Paul all uh, confirm and teach out of the Torah and the prophets into what we now call the New Testament. But the New Testament, you've got to understand, is no different from the Old. It's one word. The covenant of Shalom is not only promised in the Old Testament, it is the, that which is given to, Paul, uh, to, uh, to Abraham, then it says that even when the law was given, it did not annul the covenant and the promises of Abraham. And that is the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant that we now live in. Religion went and they separated it, unscripturally. And just about 99% of Bible schools you'll go to, they're going to teach you that and it's not accurate. It's not biblically accurate. It does not line up with the Bible. It's very important to understand that. A linear understanding of the Bible is not biblical, it's not going to make sense. And that's why we have to come back to the Word of God, and we have to read disciple, be discipled by the Word of God. I'm going to say it out very clearly and emphatically, that Christian doctrine as it is accepted in the wider world today has been compromised. It's the word in compromise. Christian doctrine as it is taught in most Bible schools are not biblical. It's not. There's too much wrong with it. And there's a reason for it. It is because Christianity is nothing else but humanism. It puts love uh, at, at a higher uh, importance than righteousness and the true salvation. Uh, and that's why we've got to be careful. We are going to make it very clear that all of us have come through that system and the system never made sense. Their doctrine never made sense. The 
math doesn't work, things don't add up. And we are going to, uh, part, of, part of what I believe is, we have to challenge every person who comes to the Word of God to say, let's find the stuff that they put in our minds that's not true. Let's get rid of it and let's replace it with what the Word of God really says. We have been indoctrinated by the agendas of man. Yeah. It's a process of submitting uh, to what it says instead of your opinion. Yeah. And it's sometimes very uncomfortable. Exactly, it's so very. Like you start angry, I just go and read and hope it's not true. <laughs> and then I read in my quiet time, it says this and it says this, and you've got to get to a point where you have to make a decision do I stick with this? Or do I just accept that it says that? No. And I say, okay, I see it. I don't like it. Might be understand it or whatever. That's very important, Charlene. Thank you. Uh, listen to Charlene. She's, she's been through this. How many times did you want to not come back here? Many. Many. <laughs> <laughs> That's my perseverance. Yeah. And virtue. Because, because what you heard here didn't line up with everything you've been taught. No, some of it's not. It's offensive. And then you've got to yeah. make a decision, do I go and make it nice? Or do I just accept what that says? And you so had to go you check. Accept what that says, which makes it much nicer to walk in the end. Mm. But there's a reward. Mm. There's a reward. But there's a huge reward. Yeah. That makes that just a good yeah. it looked like It probably looked to you like we were just disagreeing with everything that we've, you've known before. For no reason, but it's in here. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I, th- I think that's what's also happening in you, is that you've, you're going to go through a process where you're trying to reconcile everything that you've known for years with what we say in the Bible says, and the only way you're going to know is you're going to have to go check the scriptures. So the next step for you is after this discussion, and it's right, this is a good, healthy process. It's a healthy process. Mm -hmm. And you go home and you look for any scriptures that say that His love is unconditional. You look for anything you can find. And that's the process that you go into. You go like, but... It cannot be. His love must be uh, uh, unconditional. Then you go and look for what the scripture says and you'll be shocked. Mm. You see, I came into my entire walk. The church started teaching me unconditional love. But it wasn't true in me. See, I found that it was difficult for me to long term, over three, four, five years of time, love people that kept... um, perversing the Word of God. How must I love them? The truth in me was that I struggled with unrighteousness. Even the unrighteousness in me and in others, I struggled with it. And only when the the Lord finally... Look, my first few years in church, I kept asking them, what is love? Explain to me what love is. I want to do it. I think I've got it. But biblically, try and help me understand what biblical love is. And they couldn't. They just said, love is love just... The Lord says you must love your neighbor. That's all you need to know. Just go do it. Man, I did all kinds of works. 
I was in the sewerage in the, the townships. I was feeding everybody, giving all my money. I was doing all that, taking homeless people into my house so that I could just leave and steal everything I had over and over. And it wasn't wrong. I was trying to love them with the love that I understood. Um, love has to, our love relationship has to always include the repentance on my side and the other side. But anyways, uh, a last thing. We're going to give a, just a quick something to go think about uh, in relation to this. In Hebrews, can you read for us about Enoch, please? Just listen to this. This is, <clears throat> this is uh, just wanted to add another layer of motivation for us embracing this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. <clears throat> By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. By faith. Okay, now this is where, this is Enoch, seventh generation, right? The seventh generation from Adam, faith. It says, by faith, Enoch pleased God. Let's think about what he is saying, okay? He doesn't have the Old Testament, he doesn't have the New Testament. This is before Noah. This is before Noah. Nothing has happened yet. <laughs> Nothing has happened yet. They just left the garden. That's it. <laughs> what is faith? If we had to tell someone what faith is, listen quickly. Just think about it. It has to be believe in Messiah. Otherwise, what is faith? It has to be believe in the cross, right? The love of God. It has to be believe in forgiveness. It has to be believing that He forgave our sins. It has to be believing in eternal life. It has to be believing in resurrection. He was the seventh from Adam. And it says in Hebrews that by faith He pleased God. That because He had faith, He walked with God and He didn't die. He had such faith such that He faith. didn't die. And so here did we he, are. <laughs> did He have a different faith than what we had? Faith must always be faith in Messiah. Go watch the whole teaching about why was um, Abel's sacrifice accepted by God and not Cain's. Faith. Faith. What faith? What faith? See, they did not eat meat. Only after the flood, when Noah comes out of the ark, does God give them permission to eat meat. He was keeping sheep. Why? For the sacrifice. Why a lamb? Why? Because it was his proclamation of his trust in the sacrifice of the lamb. Abel, second person. Well, third person, fourth person to live. Second son. There's only four people on earth. He's keeping sheep for the sacrifice. It's his proclamation that he trusts in the resurrection of Messiah. Now, Enoch had such faith. Could it be anything different than what we consider to be faith? Listen to this. Enoch walked in such a way with God that the wages of sin was not accounted to him. Which means that the righteousness of Messiah was, had to be imputed to him. How are we saved? 
by faith through grace. When the righteousness of Messiah is imputed, that's how we saved. Enoch, before the flood. Enoch had to implement these steps before Peter had even written them. What would it take for Enoch to walk with God in such a way that he didn't die but was taken away by God? Would it take faith? The Bible already says that it would. Would it take virtue? Denying his own will? Would it take knowledge of God to walk with God in such a way that he accepts you? Would it take the knowledge of God? Would it take self-control? Would it take perseverance? All the time. That is like perseverance where you cannot miss a second because then you're going to stay on earth. (laughs) What does it say in the scripture piece that we are studying? He will give you abundantly supply entrance into. What, what, What is it that Enoch achieved? What happened to Enoch? What is that scripture? What is Peter saying? Godly nature, divine nature. Read it for us. Listen, listen to this. This is why it becomes important. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Did Enoch become partakers of the divine nature? To the extent that he, just, well, he was just with God. Okay? And having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then it ends in verse 11 with, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. See, he's not just promising us something. So an entrance will be given to you abundantly into the kingdom. Enoch proved it. So I'm contending that Enoch had to fulfill the steps as given by the Apostle Peter to the T. Who knows who Enoch's son is? So Enoch walked with God in such a way that death didn't touch him. The wages of sin. He was walking and then he was with God. Who was Enoch's son? Methuselah. What is Methuselah? Who is Methuselah? Why? What is he well known for? The man in the Bible that lived the longest. His son, the son of Enoch, that walked with God. His son was able to push death back the furthest after Enoch that any man ever did and lived the longest. No wonder Enoch was his dad. Who did Methuselah learn from when it comes to the things of God? The guy that didn't die because he pleased God so much. And it's not like he learned from him for a very long time because Enoch 
was taken away when he was like young, like 300 and something. 300 years is quite a long time to learn from someone. Anyway. Considering that his son became like 900 and something, that's at least eight, what, 600 years, six, yeah, 100 years without his father. So Enoch taught his son Methuselah the ways of God. Methuselah becomes the one that pushes death. Death is the consequence of sin. Pushes that back the furthest. And then Methuselah had a grandson. In the time when judgment and wrath came from God. And God was to destroy all of the world. Methuselah's grandson's name is Noah. Only Noah and his family were saved from God's judgment. Noah's dad was Lamech. His grandfather was Methuselah. Who did Noah learn from? Methuselah lived long enough to teach his grandson. And Noah and his family were saved. Enoch pleased God and walked with God in such a way that he didn't die. See, there could be many motivations to try and live out the instructions of Peter. So I'm going to do what Methuselah did. I'm going to learn from Peter. I'm going to learn from Abraham and from Noah. I'm going to do what they did because what Enoch did didn't just have a good outcome for Enoch. He just sought God. He, when she said the thing that she wanted in the beginning is just to get to God. It wasn't to know the Bible. It wasn't for knowledge. It wasn't for anything else. It was to get to God. Enoch got to God. But it was a good outcome for him. But see, there's a generational consequence and outcome. Generational living is our mindset that we are developing. If I devote my life to walking in the ways of God, then we make the way for the next generation to walk in the ways of God. And when the judgment comes, the last generation that will come to salvation in judgment, our lives are going to culminate in the days of Noah. The Bible says it will. There is more wrath coming. There is a judgment coming. We are to live as Enoch and Methuselah did. So that when the wrath comes, that Noah and his family will be saved. There will be a last harvest. We cannot continue in the ways of Cain. We cannot continue in the ways of the people before. Noah wasn't long after creation. Yet by Noah's time, man had forsaken the knowledge of God, all but lost it. 
And the Ark on the Ocean just shines the light on that very thing. We are living in a day where it looks like people are still studying the Bible. We've lost the knowledge of God. It's lost. We have traded it in because there was a higher bidder. Faith in God has become about, I don't want to go to hell, but I don't want to love God either. It's become humanistic, profitable to the flesh. There's two trees in the beginning. The one is the tree of life and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are both in God's garden and they're both created by God. And this is going to be ultimately what will define the spirit of Messiah and the anti-Messiah. Because the anti-Messiah is to look just like Messiah. He has to set himself up as God in the holy place. We have to be aware of that. And we can no longer ignore what is explicitly commanded in the Word of God. These teachings by the Apostle Peter, that's a commandment. We have to cultivate hearts that will say, I will not do it in any other way. I will not change it. I will not negotiate with the Word of God. I will do it the way He said. And our message today, basically everything they said boils down to this. Do it in the right sequence. Don't change the sequence. Endeavor to do it to the full. And then... Spend a lifetime returning and repeating and redoing it until it goes deeper and deeper to the very point where we enter into godliness together. Who knows what brotherly kindness would really look like? It cannot be what we've done so far. We've done pretty well with human effort. Christianity has established many schools and daycares and orphanages, soup kitchens, clinics. But the kingdom of God is nowhere to be found. Christianity has been bleeding resources into the world because we've tried to implement brotherly kindness and love in our way, without implementing the other steps. We've gone into the world with a message of love. We go to the people and say, God loves you and I love you. It's a lie. I cannot yet love you. I'm going to try my best to walk out a road of discipleship with you if you will repent. And this is, yes. It's humanism. That's why after this we're going to have just a casual chat about philosophy, how it came about and how it came that man's search for God and truth became humanism. 
We have to understand that humanism looks exactly like Christianity and Christianity looks exactly like humanism. And that is why they've discarded the truth of the Word of God because it's offending to them. You see, when he said you will be reviled and you will be persecuted for my name's sake, why did he say that? Because the world is going to embrace their own kind of love, their own kind of righteousness and their own kind of truth. And when we come and we say, this is what the Word of God says, they're going to hate us for it. That's what I wanted to say. It's that we're not here to point a finger at them. We're here to point a finger at the Word of God. We're not here to look at what they're doing wrong. Our eyes are fixed on the Word of God. They will not... Come up with a bit that is high enough or a thread that is severe enough or an action that is painful enough to convince us that the Word of God is any different than the Word of God. By the letter of it, we will endeavor to walk in it. And so I want to emphasize that all our good intentions are not going to get the job done, this process. And the other processes of overcoming as it is given, we have to learn to obey the Word of God exactly the way that it's written. That make sense? So now please, every person go home, meditate upon the steps, go have faith, the substance of biblical faith, not our idea of faith, faith as in Hebrews chapter 11. Has that become the substance of my thinking, all that I have in my head about faith? And have I been implementing it, living it out? Then virtue, then the knowledge of God, not human knowledge. We did the teaching on the principles, basic principles of the world, and that the Bible says do not be conformed to it. All those things. Go check. Don't be afraid to say, look, step number two is not implemented and established in my life, so I now know that together with perseverance, you asked the other day, what do we persevere in? We persevere in faith, virtue, knowledge of God. That's what we persevere in. That is all for today.